John chapter 19. Jesus has been before an angry mob of people who came to arrest him and to take him in before the chief priests for blasphemy. From the chief priests, he was taken to the governor of Judea, Pontius Pilate. We have seen in the last few weeks the struggle in Pilate to make a decision, which on a day-to-day -day basis wasn't a hard thing for him to do, except when it came to the Jewish religious leaders, and especially when it came to Jesus. He couldn't make a good decision. He vacillated between Jesus and the religious leaders. And all he could come up with four times, he stated in the Gospels, that Jesus was innocent of all charges. Yet the last time that he makes that particular declaration, he takes the opportunity then to scourge Jesus, to beat him incessantly and harshly, to mistreat him, if only to find some favor in the religious leaders to let Jesus go but it only made them cry louder, crucify him, crucify him. And as we saw in the last verse of scripture last week, Pilate washed his hands and he gave him over to the religious leader's demands. We begin in verse 16, the last verse that we did actually conclude in our text last time. And then delivered he, him, therefore unto them to be crucified. And they took Jesus and led him away. And he bearing his cross went forth into a place called the place of a skull, which is called in the Hebrew Golgotha, where they crucified him and two other with him on either side, one, and Jesus in the midst. And Pilate wrote a title and put it on the cross. And the writing was, Jesus of Nazareth, the King of the Jews. This title then read many of the Jews, for the place where Jesus was crucified was nigh to the city, and it was written in Hebrew and Greek and Latin. Then said the chief priests of the Jews to Pilate, Write not the king of the Jews, but that he said, I am king of the Jews. Pilate answered, What I have written, I have written. Were people to try to pinpoint the most significant event in world history over the centuries of time, they may very well consider actions or measures accomplished for the sake of mankind by other humans. Technological and medical advancements, social and educational achievements, military and political successes that stem the tide of evil dictators, tyrants, and despots whose goals were to rule over the whole world. But no matter the particular event chosen, none would ever capture the full extent of significance that would affect not only the present world, but every person and generation of people since the beginning of recorded history. That event 
That one singular event would be the crucifixion, the burial and resurrection of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. Simply but profoundly, we are saved by his death. That is why it is the most significant thing that has ever happened. We are saved by his death. Because Jesus died, we live. But there is a condition. We must believe. We must believe, and it is the necessity for belief, faith, and trust that the Apostle John stressed in his gospel. The importance of believing. He stresses it in his gospel. He stresses it in his three letters to the church. The importance of believing that Jesus Christ died, that he was buried, and that on the third day he, was, that he, he rose again from the dead. Now John himself was an eyewitness of the crucifixion. And he closes his account of the crucifixion with these words. I urge you to look down at verses 35 and 37, or through 37 in, in this same chapter, where he, where he writes, and he, he that saw it bear record, saw the crucifixion. He that saw it bear record, and his record is true. And he knoweth that he saith true, that you might believe. There is his purpose for writing this gospel, that you might believe. For these things were done, that the scripture should be fulfilled, a bone of him shall not be broken. <clears throat> Referring, of course, to prophecies written in the Old Testament that would point to the crucifixion of Jesus. And again, another scripture saith, they shall look on him whom they pierced. <clears throat> now, <clears throat> excuse me, as we saw last time, Pontius Pilate thought that he was washing his hands of this matter as he turned Jesus over to the chief priests and more than likely with a assigned death sentence and a detachment of Roman soldiers to carry out the actual execution. Pilate may have delivered him, and the soldiers may have taken him, and they may have led him, but it was Jesus alone, it was Jesus himself who bore the cross and went forth. And those two words that are in our text that Jesus went forth strongly suggests that Jesus was not a defeated victim. He was not a defeated victim, but in fact he was the majestic victor who bore his cross for a specific purpose. It was to save man. He went forth. He went forth consciously. He went forth strongly. He went forth with that purpose of accomplishing what he came to this earth to accomplish. This was something that the Lord had made clear in his earthly ministry. And certainly time and again, he would refer to the very fact that he came to die. I want to take you through some verses in John chapter 10, actually from uh, later to earlier. Beginning at verses 17 and 18 of John chapter 10, Jesus said this. He said, <clears throat> Therefore doth my Father love me, because I lay down my life, that I, may that I might take it again. He says, Therefore does my Father love me, because I lay down my life. That is saying that I'm laying it down to die. No man taketh it from me. It doesn't matter what we saw in Pilate, and what we saw in the Jewish religious leaders, and what we see with these soldiers that have taken and, and, and put Jesus on a cross. He says, no man taketh it from me, but I lay it down of myself. I have power to lay it down, and I have power to take it again. This commandment have I received of my Father. Go back up to verse 15. As the Father knoweth me, even so know I the Father. And I lay down my life for the sheep. I am laying down my life for the sheep. The sheep are those who hear my voice and know my voice when I call. They are the ones who know who I am. He even said to his own detractors, the reason why you don't believe in me because you're not one of my sheep. Because if you were, you would listen. In verse 11, go back up a few verses. When he says, I am the good shepherd. The good shepherd giveth his life for the sheep. 
His whole purpose in coming was to die for those who believe in him. Go even further back, not in John chapter 10, but now go to John chapter 3. And look at verses 14 through 17. As Jesus uses that example from the Old Testament when Moses had lifted up the bronze serpent before the people. And he said, and as Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness, even so must the Son of Man be lifted up. That whosoever believeth in him should not perish, but have eternal life. For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten Son. And we need to understand that that phrase literally means that he gave up his only begotten Son. Gave him up to death. Gave him up to do these things that he came to do on this earth. God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten Son that whosoever believeth in him should not perish but have everlasting life. For God sent not his Son into the world to condemn the world, but that the world through him might be saved. So Jesus going to Calvary, Jesus going to Golgotha, to the place of the skull, was not happenstance. Didn't just so happen that that's where he was going. He was going because he knew he was going there. He was going because he wanted to go there. Because if he doesn't go there, we are in a lot of trouble. If the Lamb of God who taketh away the sin of the world does not die on that cross, we're in a lot of trouble. And he went forth to a place called Golgotha, the skull. What we know today is Calvary. The thought and the visage of the skull brings to mind what the Roman statesman philosopher Cicero said of crucifixion. He said, it was the most cruel and shameful of all punishments. Let it never come near the body of a Roman citizen. Nay, not even near his thoughts or eyes or ears. Now, while crucifixion originally belonged to the Phoenicians and then to the Persians, the Romans would make special use of the cross. And even though there may have been exceptions, no Roman citizen could be crucified. It was the form of capital punishment reserved for the lowest kind of criminals, particularly those who promoted insurrection. And as we learned in the person of Barabbas, an insurrectionist was not only a thief and a robber and one who stirred up problems with the government, an insurrectionist was mostly a murderer. To this day, believers consider the cross as a symbol of glory and victory. But in Pilate's day, it stood for the vilest kind of rejection, shame, and suffering. It stood for that until our Lord Jesus made the difference. No one since has been able to make the kind of difference that we see in the cross, what it means to us as God's glory, as Christ's glory, and as his victory for us. John does not go into details, which the other gospel writers did, about Jesus going to Golgotha. He doesn't mention the walk through the Via Dolorosa and the through the city of Jerusalem to go outside of the gates to the place called the skull. He doesn't mention <clears throat> Simon the Cyrene who helped Jesus carry the cross beam as the other gospels mention. John just takes us directly to Calvary. And he simply mentions that Jesus was crucified between two other men, two sinners, Two unjust thieves and illustrates for us by having that picture of Jesus between these two sinners, these two unjust men, the preeminence and the sacrifice, and the supremacy, I should say, of his sacrifice. 
the preeminence and the supremacy of his sacrifice. Jesus was surrounded, in other words, by a world of unjust men. Yet he was dying for them. The Apostle Paul writes in the book of Ephesians that Jesus died for us even while we were yet sinners. He died for the ungodly. And it's a reminder to us that we cannot save ourselves and we don't add one bit to our salvation in any way. The only thing we bring to our salvation is our sin. That's all we bring. He mentioned to Titus, not by works of righteousness which we have done, but according to his mercy he has saved us. The fact that we, you know, that he died for us while we were yet sinners is to remind us that we were dead. We were dead in our trespasses. We were dead in our sins. There would be no way that we could add to the, you know, to the life that is eternal, the life that is spiritual, life that only Jesus can give. There's no way that we can add to it. That's the whole purpose of understanding how Jesus died for the ungodly. Died in the midst of the ungodly as he, as he did between those two sinners. And then the apostle Peter would clearly note the importance of that same illustration when, when he writes in 1 Peter chapter 2 verses 21 through 25 and says, For even hereunto are you called, because Christ also suffered for us, leaving us an example that you should follow his steps, who did no sin, neither was guile found in his mouth. In other words, there was no deceit in the mouth of Jesus, who when he was reviled, reviled not again. When he suffered, he threatened not. And you would think, well, Jesus could probably threaten pretty good for what they did to him. If we think in terms of the way we would respond to people doing things to us, what would we say? Hey, I'm remembering you, man. But wasn't it Jesus who said, Father, forgive them for they know not what they do? This is again another illustration of how we how, how we overestimate the body and we underestimate the head. We underestimate the head and the heart of Jesus. Who did no sin, neither was guile found in his mouth, who when he was reviled, reviled not again. When he suffered, he threatened not, but committed himself to him that judges righteously, who his own self bear our sins in his own body on the tree. Notice, th this is the key verse here. Who his own self bear our sins in his own body on the tree that we, being dead to sins, should live unto righteousness. By whose stripes you were healed. For you were a sheep going astray, but are now returned unto the shepherd and bishop of your souls. And then in chapter 3 of 1 Peter, in verse 18, he says, For Christ also has one suffered for sins, the just for the unjust. The just for the unjust, that he might bring us to God, being put to death in the flesh, but quickened, made alive by his Spirit. And then Christ being on the cross was also an illustration of preeminent guilt. What I mean by that is, for Jesus our Messiah was being counted as the king of sinners. He was the king of sinners. There was one time when he spoke to some of the religious leaders and said, you know, I didn't, I didn't come for the well, I came for those who were sick. The fact of the matter is, everybody on the earth was sick. The religious, the unreligious, the heathen, the pagan, he came for all of us. 
And it is the words that uh, Peter had, had, uh, had quoted from Isaiah chapter 53, verses 4 through 6, that remind us of that position that the Messiah put himself in for us. Verse 4 says, Surely he has borne our griefs and carried our sorrows. Yet we did esteem him stricken, smitten of God, and afflicted, but he was wounded for our transgressions. He was bruised for our iniquities. They weren't his because he didn't have any. He was bruised for our iniquities. The chastisement of our peace was upon him, and with his stripes we are healed. All we, like sheep, have gone astray. We have turned every one to his own way, and the Lord hath laid on him the iniquity of us all. The just for the unjust. The sinless made to be sin for us, as, as Paul put it in 2 Corinthians 5.21, when he said, for he has made him to be sin for us, who knew no sin, that we might be made the righteousness of God in him. I have to mention here that uh, when, when Bruce came this, uh, just yesterday for, uh, to lead us in worship and to share his, his uh, songs and his testimonies, uh, we, we never had an opportunity, and, I, and, I, and we actually don't oftentimes do that even here, but uh, the, never had the opportunity to say, well, this is what I'm talking about, this is what I'm speaking on, and, you know, uh, no, he was just ready with a list that he had received from the Lord on his way over here. And as I sat here last night worshiping the Lord as he was going through the songs, I kept thinking, Lord, you just orchestrate everything so beautifully because all the songs he sang, touch something about this message today. That's the work of the Holy Spirit. Not anything we ourselves can do. Oh, we can, we can plot and plan, you know, but I'd rather do it the, this other way. Just let the Holy Spirit work. He sang songs from these very same texts. The Lord is speaking to our hearts, even through that. Well, there was another event of the cross that took place in our text. That was the title that was placed upon the cross by Pontius Pilate himself. Verses 19 through 22 of John 19. And Pilate wrote a title and put it on the cross. <clears throat> and the writing was, Jesus of Nazareth, the King of the Jews. This title then read many of the Jews, for the place where Jesus was crucified was nigh to the city. And it was written in Hebrew, Greek, Latin. Then said the chief priests of the Jews to Pilate, Write not the king of the Jews, but that he said, I am the king of the Jews. In other words, don't put it up there as a proclamation that he is the king of the Jews. Write that this is one of the reasons why he's on that cross is because he blasphemed and said that he was the king of the Jews. And Pilate answered, what I have written, I have written. Now consider three simple facts about this title. First, the people read the title, as John mentions. The people read the title, but seemed to be somewhat indifferent to it. Not much is said about them other than the fact that they read the title as they went by. It was, they were, it was near to them, and they all read it. So it seemed to be somewhat indifferent. Uh, they, they seemed to be somewhat indifferent to it. In other words, it, it had no great effect upon them. There wasn't a, a mass movement of sorrow and repentance. That's not to say that there weren't people that were weeping over what was happening to Jesus, because we know from the other Gospels that there were, but not in some great mass sort of situation. There was no mass repentance over what was happening. And certainly there was no final acceptance of him, except for those who had already made a decision to believe Christ. Secondly, the 
religious leaders objected to the title. And, and while they didn't ask for it, as I said, to be removed, they, they did strongly suggest that the wording be changed. What that suggests to us, though, is that their unbelief was obstinate. It was determined. It was fixed. And aside from that, it was quite profane. Coming from so-called religious leaders who should have known that that was the Messiah on the cross. Now Jesus did say, and with authority, he did proclaim himself to be the king of the Jews, the promised Messiah, but that was just too much for these unregenerate hypocrites. And then there was the title itself, the king of the Jews. Which I still consider, you know, this, this I, I'm, I'm still pondering the heart of, of Pilate through all of this. You know, as, as, as much as he was wishy-washy going be, between Jesus and, and the religious leaders in the, previous, in the pre previous part of this chapter as well as in chapter 18. But, but just this wishy-washiness of, of, of Pilate. He was very strong in, in, in continuing to put out that Jesus was the king of the Jews. Now, and I wonder about that. I wonder about that. I'm not saying that all of a sudden he became a believer. I personally don't think he was and would, would have become. But just as Caiaphas himself gave a prophecy about Jesus dying for the sins of the nation, as a prophecy, remember, as the high priest. So here was God using the mouth of Pilate to proclaim Jesus as the king of the Jews. Something to think about. And then it was written in the three great languages of the world, Hebrew, Greek, and Latin. And what they did was providentially symbolize his rightful rule as king of the universe. And so the apostle Paul, who at one time was an unregenerate religious zealot as those same leaders, would eventually recognize the fullness of Christ's righteous royalty. He would recognize it in his own life. Having gone from being Saul of Tarsus to Paul the Apostle. And in Philippians chapter 2, verses 7 through 11, he makes clear what he knows Jesus to be. He says, but made himself of no reputation. And took upon him the form of a servant, and was made in the likeness of men. And being found in fashion as a man, he humbled himself, and became obedient unto death, even the death of the cross, where, wherefore God also has highly exalted him, and given him a name which is above every name, that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow, of things in heaven, and things in earth, and things under the earth, and that every tongue should confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. And no man was to be called Lord, and the only one that could be called Lord would be God himself. And so therefore that is a declaration of the deity of Jesus Christ, that he is called Lord to the glory of God the Father. But even more, when he writes to Timothy in 1 Timothy 6, verses 13 through 16, he writes to him about the royalty of Christ in the sense that he says, I give thee charge in the sight of God, verse 13, who quickeneth or makes alive all things and before Christ Jesus, who before Pontius Pilate witnessed a good confession. His life before Pontius Pilate, as we have been studying over the last few weeks, was a good confession of who he was. Now we know why Pilate struggled the way he did. Because he was in the presence not only of the, of the Lord, the one who has called the Lord to the glory of God the Father, but he was in the very presence of who he says he is here. When he says, who before Pontius Pilate witnessed a good confession that thou keep this commandment without spot, unrebukable unto the appearing or until the appearing of our Lord Jesus Christ, which in his times he shall show who is the blessed and only potentate. The blessed and only potentate. The King of kings and Lord of lords. Who only hath immortality, dwelling in the light which no man can approach unto, whom no man has seen nor can see, to whom be honor and power everlasting. Amen.
the blessed and only potentate. That, that brings to mind. And I, and I say this with all due respect, but, you know, folks, there's, there's these guys that wear these big fez hats, you know, the Shriners. And some of their, you know, leadership will have on there, on there with gold, you know, with their symbols and all. And they'll say the grand potentate. You're not a, you're not a potentate, folks. Jesus is the only potentate. The only one with the power. The only one with the title of King of Kings and Lord of Lords. A man can put stuff on their hats. Man, I, I guess it looks weird and nice, you know. But man, don't, 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 <laughs> don't blaspheme because that's that's a form of blasphemy. You're a potentate. The only potentate I know is the power you give off, you don't put on some deodorant. Potentate. No. Only one. The only potentate. Another event connected to the cross had to do with the soldiers gambling for Jesus' clothes. Look at verses 23 and 24. Then the soldiers, when they had crucified Jesus, took his garments and made four parts, to every soldier a part, and also his coat, or tunic. Now the coat was without seam, woven from the top throughout. They said, therefore, among themselves, let us not rend it or tear it, but cast lots for it, whose it shall be. Now stop there, because the next phrase is written by John. John then says, that the scripture might be fulfilled, which saith, they parted my raiment among them, and for my vesture they did cast lots. These things, therefore, the soldiers did. So now the soldiers had done their dreadful deed. They had placed Jesus upon the cross. They had hoisted him up upon that one tree, as it were, So now it was time to consider their own interests. They were now more focused on the spoils before them than the Savior who was about to die for them. And John describes the scene with enough accuracy to point out to us that there were, in fact, four soldiers who would place Jesus on that cross and eventually hoist the crossbeam that bore the Lord onto the planted tree trunk, pre uh, prepared to handle the weight of both crossbeam and criminal, because that's how they considered Jesus, a common criminal. And those four soldiers considered the dying man's clothes their rightful spoil that consisted of two principal garments. There was the cloak or the outer garment and the tunic or the inner garment. And as for the outer garment, the cloak, they, they made short work of that. I mean, they actually tore it into four parts along the seams. And material of that sort was always useful in some way, so even though, even though four of them had a, a part of it, they could use it for their own benefit. But the tunic, which was the inner garment, the tunic was different. It was a seamless robe. And because it was seamless, it, it, had, it was a garment of great value. It was very valuable because of the way that it was, uh, it was put together. And that was a very similar kind of, of, of garment, similar to the robe of, of a high priest, in fact. So the question is, was this robe in its seamless perfection like the inner life of the Lord Jesus himself, flawless, perfect. It can certainly act as, as, a, as a type of, of that kind of life that only Jesus could have. In another sense, it was also a symbol of Christ as our mediator between us and God the Father. If in fact it was a, 
a, a, a tunic like the, that of a high priest. Well, Jesus is our high priest before the Father. As Paul says in 1 Timothy 2, verses 5 and 6, he says, For there is one God and one mediator between God and men, the man Christ Jesus. And he emphasizes the man Christ Jesus because Jesus had to come and put on flesh himself to be able to bear our sins on the cross in his sinless perfection. And notice in verse 6 it says, Who gave himself a ransom for all to be testified in due time. But also in Hebrews chapter 9, verse 15, it says, and for this cause he is the mediator of the New Testament. In other words, he is the mediator of the new covenant that by means of death for the redemption of the transgressions that were under the first testament or the first covenant being the old covenant or the old testament as it were, that they which are called might receive the promise of eternal inheritance. By means of death, for the redemption of the transgressions that were under the first testament, under the law, in other words. Jesus came as the mediator of a new covenant. And then in verse 24 comes the clarification, or at least for us, in verse 24 it says, For Christ has not entered into the holy places made with hands, which are the figures of the true, but into heaven itself, now to appear in the presence of God for us. Notice, for us. He's entering in as a mediator on our behalf. For us. So that, that tunic, that inner garment, which was very like the garments of, of the high priest, reflects then in a, in a sense of, of illustration. Another aspect of Jesus going to the cross for us as a mediator. But back there at Calvary, here were insensitive, worldly-minded men, void of any compassion whatsoever, as, as, the, as Mary, the, the mother of Jesus, stands by the cross. You would think, well, there's the mother of this criminal. We could at least give her the clothes, but no. They show the insensitivity of a world just like the one we live in today. I was, I was talking to uh, the secretary of the uh, Vista Sleta Methodist Church that's over there behind uh, the uh, uh, Tinseltown. Uh, Last week I had to drive by it after church and uh, uh, they were putting out all of these um, um, pumpkins, I guess, for the harvest season or whatever. They have pumpkins everywhere. I mean, they had a lot of pumpkins out there. And, you know, I, I'd seen it before. Uh, so I, I drove by, I didn't think a whole lot about it other than the fact that I thought about pumpkin pie for a minute, just for a minute, <laughs> you know, with a little bit of whipped cream on top, okay. Oh, well, a lot of whipped cream on top. All right, but anyway, that, that, that just it was a fleeting moment that, 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 that took off. Uh, but anyway, so, you know, I thought about that. And then the next day, uh, on Monday, I, I was actually speaking to the secretary from that, from that church. Uh, <laughs> and, uh, and I told her, I said, I saw all those pumpkins. And she says, you know, people came later on and started stealing them. And I thought, well, that's nice. I said, doesn't that just give us a good illustration of the world in which we live? People today are, are, are just so insensitive. That's why we have to lock our doors and put bars on our windows and all because we don't, we don't want to encourage any. Well, what a difference from 40, 50 years ago when, you know, we could keep our doors open in the summertime and let the breeze come through and, and all. It's so different. It's getting worse, by the way, isn't it? The insensitivity of man to one another. Crazy. So, let's consider now the fulfillment of Scripture at this point. What they were doing with the garments of Jesus. Turn to Psalm 22. 
Psalm 22. David, the psalmist, is writing now prophetically about Jesus on the cross. And in verse 14, and of course you want to read the whole chapter, but because of time, let's just begin in verse 14. I am poured out, he says, like water. And all my, boing, all my bones are out of joint. My heart is like wax. It is melted in the midst of my bowels. My strength is dried up like a potsherd. My tongue cleaveth to my jaws. And thou hast brought me into the dust of death. For dogs have compassed me. The assembly of the wicked have enclosed me. They pierced my hands and my feet. I may tell all my bones. They look and stare upon me. And notice verse 18. They part my garments among them. And cast lots upon my vesture. Man seeks that which can be felt and held in hand as personal possessions without any lasting value. When you kind of put it all together, most everything that we want to possess is something that's not going to last anyway. Especially when you think about the things that Peter said that. You know, there's coming a time when the earth is going to melt and the, the heavens and the earth are going to melt with the fervent heat and nothing's going to last. But we seek after those things as far as man is concerned. Unless it pertains to that which is eternal. Because the, because the eternal does last. And the things that are eternal, that belong to God, that God is giving to us, those things are of the greater value. The word of truth, the word of God, the eternal life that can only come from believing in Jesus Christ. These are things that will last. These are things that we ought to hold on to. These are things that we ought to take hold of in such a way that we don't ever want. To let go. To never let go of God's truth. To never let go of Jesus. At any time, in any given way. I want you to remember the words of, the, of, of Jesus when he said in Mark 8, verses 34 through 38. Because this links us now to the title that I gave to this message. Bearing his cross, bearing our cross. In Mark 8, verse 34, it says, And when he had called the people unto him with his disciples also, he said unto them, Whosoever will come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. Take up his cross. And follow me. For whosoever will save his life shall lose it. In other words, to try to save his life in this life, in this place, on this earth, that by the way is temporal. But whosoever will save his life shall lose it, but whosoever shall lose his life for my sake. And the Gospels, the same shall save it. For what, profit, for what shall it profit a man if he shall gain the whole world and lose his own soul? Or what shall a man give in exchange 
for his soul. Did you hear that last song we heard? The great exchange. What a contrast. What shall a man give in exchange for his soul? Whosoever therefore shall be ashamed of me and of my words and this adulterous and sinful generation of him also shall the Son of Man be ashamed when he cometh in the glory of his Father with his holy angels. I, I, I want to take you to Matthew chapter 16 also. It's not going to be up here, so you'll have to turn there in your Bibles. But uh, th this is the comparable passage to this, but I think it's important to see and to hear those same words the way they are presented to us in Matthew's Gospel, verse 24. And I'll read down through verse 27. It says, Then said Jesus unto his disciples, If any man will come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. For whosoever will save his life shall lose it, and whosoever will lose his life for my sake shall find it. For what is a man profited if he shall gain the whole world and lose his own soul? Or what shall a man give in exchange for his soul? For the Son of Man shall come in the glory of his Father with his angels, and then he shall reward every man according to his works. Can we understand from hearing those two passages, can, can we understand the importance of bearing our own cross? Now the key is going to be what we read in John 19, where it says that he, Jesus, bearing his cross, went forth. Those two words, I said, are of great significance. But what Jesus taught his disciples here in Matthew 16 and in, Matthew, in Mark 8 is that this is the nature of his kingdom. This is to be the very nature of the kingdom of Christ and that the honor that comes from this, from this world was not to be expected by those who follow Christ. Too many people are expecting some kind of honor from this world. I don't want honor from this world. I don't want you to think that you can get honor from this world. Because once we came to Christ, we are not of this kingdom anymore. We are to consider the honor that he will give to his own. We who humble ourselves, it says he will exalt us in due season. It is not what we find, what we work for, what we expend our lives for in this earth that matters. It is what Jesus came to this earth to do on our behalf that is going to exist and, and last for us for a whole eternity. There are four principles that I want to close with based on this passage here in Matthew 16 and in Mark chapter 8. Four quick things. We need, we need to have a sincere desire to belong to Jesus Christ. Therefore, if any man be willing to be my disciple, the first principle is that you have to have a willing heart to will that. And the fact that if we, if we will that, relationship with Jesus Christ that is one thing that he'll honor if any man be willing to be my disciple well secondly comes the next step if you're willing to be his disciple then we need to renounce self-dependence and self selfish pursuits that's why he says let him deny himself let him deny himself that doesn't mean that we stopped doing the things that we do in, in our life, as far as with our families, as far as with our jobs, with our work, whatever it is that we do. God gives us the wisdom and the grace and the understanding to be able to do those things in a totally different way now because we follow after Jesus. So we're not going to do it the way we did it before we came to Christ. But it is in the pursuit of things, to, whether we hold on to them, the things of this world, we can deny ourselves. We, we deny ourselves. Our pursuits in this life are not as important as eternity. If God blesses you, he blesses you. And praise the Lord for that. But I'm not going to stand up here and say, look, if you guys start running up here and throw your money on the stage, you know, I'll walk on it. 
like some of these TV preachers do. And they'll, you know, I'll walk on it and I'll be, I'll be anointing it, man. I'll anoint that money and you're going to be blessed. But you got to bring the money. You want a blessing, you got to pay up. That's what one preacher said on TV one day. Wow. Can you think of that in light of what we have just read about Jesus being scourged last week? And what we read about Jesus being on the cross on our behalf, suffering the way he did for us? To deny ourselves leads us to embrace the condition which the Lord has appointed. Bear the troubles as we sang about today or at least heard about today. How much hope there is in the midst of our trials and circumstances and troubles. To embrace the condition which the Lord has appointed and bear the troubles and difficulties that he may meet while walking this Christian path. That we may meet while walking this Christian path. Folks, let him take up his cross. Take up his cross. Take up your cross. It's the symbol of death. Some TV preacher, you all know who I'm talking about. Talked about him last time. Wrote a book called Your Best Life Ever. But that's not what it's all about. That's not the gospel. You know what the gospel is? He should have written a book called The Best Death Ever. Because Jesus called us to die. Deny ourselves and to die to ourselves. To die to ourselves and to live in Christ. people that follow all of that stuff some of us have been down that road haven't we till our eyes were open that's not what it's all about that's not the kingdom of God that's not the love of Christ that's not what it's all about it's to imitate Jesus and to do and suffer all in his spirit so let's follow Jesus Pick up your cross and follow me, he says. Identify with the death of Jesus Christ. That's what we told the people that were baptized a couple of weeks ago. Pick up your cross. Die to self. Die to sin. Follow me. So bear your cross. Go forth. Go forth, just as Jesus went forth to the cross. Go forth in the victory that is ours. In Christ Jesus our Lord. Bear your cross. Don't lay it aside.